If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 will be the primary place we will direct our attention this morning in God's word as we study the life of Jesus, his descent and his ascent. We're in the middle of a teaching series that started two weeks ago, the first week after Easter, and from Easter to Pentecost Sunday, we're going to be considering the life trajectory, the journey from heaven to earth, down to under the earth and the ground being buried, and then back up onto the earth and then exalted to the heavens. The journey, the V-shaped journey of Jesus Christ. And as I have done so in the last couple weeks, I want to begin by explaining that this entire complete picture of the life of Jesus is helpful for us understanding the true essence and message of the gospel, what Christianity is really all about. And by doing so, I've been trying to contrast some popular ways that throughout my Christian life, I have either read or heard the gospel presented. One of those goes like this. On a scale of one to ten, so this is, imagine somebody is sharing the gospel with a Christian sharing to a non-Christian. On a scale of one to ten, the Christian asks the non-Christian, one being miserable, ten being the happiest person in the world, how would you describe your happiness? What would that number be? And then the person responds. And let's just say for the sake of example, they say, yeah, it's, it's been a rough patch. You know, it's, it's been about a three or a four. Then the Christian follows up by asking, what do you think that number would be if God were in your life and you had a relationship with Jesus Christ? And then maybe they'd say, I don't, I don't know, or well, maybe it would be better. And then in one specific example from a prominent evangelism training ministry that has trained literally millions upon millions of people all around the world. This is actually where I'm getting this example from. I didn't make it up. The trainer says, at this point, you'd want to tell them, before I met Jesus, my life was terribly unhappy. It might be fair to say I was depressed. I was a a one or two. But then I became a Christian, and now things are a ten. Would you be interested in learning more about how my life changed by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how I can have happiness and that you can have happiness in Jesus? And that's the setup for then sharing the gospel. And at this point, I could kind of, to some degree, care less as to what they say about Jesus after that. The whole setup has repackaged the message of Christianity in such a therapeutic kind of way that we might call this the therapeutic gospel. And if I had to guess, some of you may feel like, "Eh, I don't know if it's ever been put that black and white. But then again, I am telling you, this is from a leader in the Christian church that trains hundreds upon thousands of people, a part of a large organization about how to share the gospel with people. But my guess is that even if you've not heard that specific presentation, there are numbers of us in this room that have come to me for counsel because they're struggling to believe the love of God or struggling to believe that God loves them because their life has not gotten better after following Jesus. 
It's as if they signed up for something and feel like God's not delivering what I signed up for. Many people even say, after following Jesus, the circumstances in my life seem like, if not have been, worse. Therefore, I'm convinced that one of the reasons many Christians feel this way is not necessarily just because of explicit gospel presentations like the one I just presented, but probably the more common thing that you have heard and experienced is being around Christians and churches that tell stories and testimonies just like the one that I shared. How many times have you heard stories of a preacher or from somebody getting up on stage and saying, my life was terrible. I was in the worst of the worst, broken, depressed, lost everything, but then I found Jesus and everything is better now. As the old song goes in the Lego movie, everything is awesome because I found Jesus. The point of today's message is not to throw a giant wet blanket over any powerful testimony of rags to riches or from terrible desperation to wonderful deliverance. I believe these stories are true and they happen and that's many of your stories. I do rejoice when I hear them. What I would like to say is that these stories not only illustrate one of the main purposes of today's message, but they also illustrate the continual and regular pattern and rhythm of the entire Christian life. Namely, the big idea of today's message is that humiliation is the path. Humiliation is the path for the Christian because it leads to exaltation. Or it's sometimes been said, the way up is to first go down. To be like Jesus and ascend to the highest place of honor requires, necessitates a descent down to the lowest place of humiliation and shame. Before there can be any glorious resurrection, there must be a devastating and humiliating death. And so what we're going to see today is that does not just summarize the gospel, it summarizes your daily life. Moment by moment, day by day, week after week, year after year. The Christian life should not be summarized as I was down into the pit, but then in the grace of God, he brought me up onto the rock, and now I have lived blissfully and gloriously a 10 out of 10 of happiness the rest of my life, happily ever after. Instead, as we look at the book of Philippians, the Christian life is filled with descents and ascents. To follow Jesus is to follow his humiliation and to choose and willingly put ourselves on that path. So let's first begin by seeing this pattern in the life of Jesus right in the center of the book. If you're understanding Philippians as a whole letter, there's four chapters, right in the middle of the middle of the book is chapter two. And there is a poetic hymn, hymn meaning like a song that they would sing in the early church. And this is one of the early letters written in the history of the church. So this is an early song an early poetic expression of what it means for somebody to believe in Jesus. So this is Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 6. Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he, this is Jesus, all, all the subjects here are Jesus. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope you can see it just right on the surface. We want to walk through the the details of this first, starting with Jesus' descent and ascent. Then from there, I want to look at the broader message of Philippians and a few selected passages in Philippians to show how this is not just the center of the book in terms of the ordering of the words. It's the center message of Philippians that every other part of the book is keying in on, especially Paul's own descent and ascent. So we'll first look at Jesus' descent, and then we'll see Jesus' ascent. Second, we will see Paul and the way his life repeatedly has descending moments and ascending moments. And finally, we should conclude our time considering what it would look like for us to follow Jesus, our own descent, our own humiliation, and our own ascent and exaltation. So let's first just make sure we understand what is one of the most densely packed, theologically, poetically beautiful mountaintops of the New Testament, verses 6 to 11. Jesus's descent and ascent. It begins in verse 6 by telling us that Jesus existed in heaven before he came down as a human on the earth. Notice the phrase in verse 6 that he was in the form of God. To use this word morphe in the Greek language is not to mean that Jesus was like a God and not really God. That's not what it means. It means that he was characterized and defined all that it means to be God. It is one of the most explicit and profound statements of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is both God and man, as this passage makes clear. And so what it looks like for God to have ambitions or desires and character is to be described as a person that does not want to grasp at something or acquire something. God in his essence and being, according to this passage, one way we can describe him is one who is not consumed with seizing and grasping. Instead, it is about giving and loving others. This is what it is meant by the phrase, equality with God was not something to be grasped. It is an extremely rare word, and almost every time it's used outside of the Bible, because it's only used here in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, it is the word that means to rob someone, to steal and to take. Christ did not consider that the way for him to be equal with the Father was the equivalent of stealing or grasping. It's giving, not holding on and keeping for himself, but wanting to give of himself, which is exactly what the next phrase means. The giving of Jesus is not just a giving of things he has, it is the giving of himself. He emptied himself. And that phrase has caused a lot of trouble in theological Christian discussions. He emptied himself? What? Does this mean he stopped being God? No, this is a poetic metaphor. Christ did not empty himself of anything. The text simply says he emptied himself. 
Or we might say he poured himself out. And what that looks like is explained by the rest of the poem. As you keep reading, you see that he became a man. He died on a cross. That is his self-emptying. He did not make a trade where it was, let me trade my godness to become a human. Instead, the point of this passage is to say that Jesus fully and accurately displays the character and nature and the essence of God by becoming a slave. Yes, a slave. The word servant in some translations is literally doulos and it means to be a slave. And to be a slave is to be the ultimate expression of a human being that is not a human. It's anti-human, to have no rights whatsoever. So this passage is saying that God is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of other people. He becomes a human slave willingly, giving up not only his rights, but his entire life. He literally, as it says, died. And not just any death. The most humiliating, excruciating death being hung on a cross. Therefore, the equality with God is found in its most clear, truest expression by the idea of emptying himself on a cross. Even death on a cross, it says. Here's a couple quotes to make sure we're clear about the humiliation of the cross. This is from early century descriptions of the cross. Crucifixion was not able to be described. It was so horrible of a deed that there are no words. To bind a Roman citizen would be a crime. To flog him would be an abomination. To slay him would be like an act of murder. But to crucify someone? Speechless. The cross is excruciating. It's embarrassing. It's degrading. It's painful. It's humiliating. It's cruel. It was devised by the Persians, it was perfected by the Romans, and it was only fit for slaves and the most riffraff among the criminals. It is the ultimate human degradation. As one is hanging in the sky, stark naked as it were, before the watching world, as nails are driven through hands and feet, and they become an object of complete and utter humiliation." And as we have just walked through the Gospel of Matthew and considered the shame and the humiliation of Christ, here he is. There is your God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, humbled. And this is no wonder why Paul says the cross is foolishness to so many. It is in the cross that God's truest character is displayed, his full submission and obedience to the Father, his unbelievable humility, his outlandish and lavish expression of love, all manifested by him leaving heaven, coming to the earth, not just becoming a man, becoming less than a man, a slave, and then dying the most humiliating death of all, death on a cross. This is the path that I'm referring to of humiliation. Down, down, down the passage goes. This is what it meant for Christ to be equal with God. When you look at Jesus dying on a cross, hanging, you should think that 
is the truest meaning of who God is. He is a self-giving offering of love. Can you see now the path from verse 6 down to the bottom of verse 8? Jesus descended from heaven to the earth, to under the earth. Verse 8 explicitly says the words, he humbled himself. And very literally, this word humbled himself could be translated very simply put, to take the lowest place. He became lower and lower with each phrase we read from verse 6 to verse 8. But that brings us to the turning point, the glorious pivot moment in verse 9. Down, down, down in humiliation, and the result is exaltation. Because of his humiliation, that's why the word therefore is there. What's the therefore, therefore? It's to explain that because of his humiliation, uttermost descent to the depths, God then exalts him. Or you could put it this way, because of the cross, everything changes. And in fact, in this downward descent poetically, in verse 9, the grammar changes. Jesus was the object of verse 6, 7, and 8. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Now, the object of the verse in verse 9 is God. And Jesus, Jesus is the subject in verses 6 to 8. And now, God is the object in verses, God the Father, that is, in verses 9 to 11, and therefore Jesus becomes the object. This is where we see that God then exalts Jesus. It is as if the Father is looking at Jesus and saying, yes, that's right. To be equal with the Father, it looks like this. I want to affirm this. I want to say yes to this. I want to vindicate this. I want to exalt this kind of action and love. To exalt Jesus to the highest place is to give him then the name that is above every name. And I love this phrase here because it's, again, this poem is unique amongst passages of Scripture. We saw earlier words that are only used here in the rest of the New Testament. Here again, hyper-exalted is the literal way to explain highly exalted. The normal word for exalt with the prefix hyper, or we could say super exalted. He wasn't just exalted. Oh, he died on a cross, and then God exalted him. He highly exalted him. This was not average or ordinary. This is of super exaltation. And this one word encapsulates the resurrection, the ascension, his coronation ceremony in the heavens to sit down at the right hand of the Father, and his ongoing intercession, or as we call the heavenly session, as Jesus forever remains our priest king over all of humanity. As one author says, Christ so totally and utterly satisfied the desire of the Father for the work of God wholeheartedly, so fully completing the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, he generously and graciously and beneficently poured out on Jesus gifts. Because the Father was so pleased with what Jesus had done and expressed the very nature and being of what it means to be God, the Father then gifts him 
with not only exaltation and a place above all other, but with a new name. And the name is not Jesus. The name is Lord. When you're reading this carefully, when it says he bestowed or he graced upon, he gave him a new name, that is the new name Lord, his title now. The title Lord is the the phrase kurios in the Greek, and it means the same phrase used in the Old Testament to talk about Yahweh, God. Or Lord would have been the common everyday term to use for a ruler or a leader or like Caesar in the Roman Empire. Therefore, the result of exaltation is that one day in the future, all of creation will bow and confess and give allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Lord. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. There is no realm of existence, whether spiritual beings in the heavens, whether humans alive on the earth now, or those who have died under the earth. All of creation in its full encompassed realms of existence will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, if we look at the whole trajectory, this short little poem encapsulates the entire journey of Jesus, his descent in his ascent, starting with him as a pre-human God in the heavens, coming down to earth and becoming a man, his humanity being further humiliated by him taking on the form of a slave and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross as he suffered. And then at that very extreme, lowest of low places, he is resurrected from the dead. He then ascends back into the heavens and he is reigning until he puts all enemies under his feet and the future judgment declares Christ as Lord and King over all. That is the descent and ascent of Jesus in a nutshell. So, in light of that, let's consider, secondly, Paul's descent and ascent in the book of Philippians. And before I do that, to just kind of break up the density of what I just unpacked, because there's a lot of density in what was just covered, I want you to consider this question that was given to a Roman uh, Catholic monk. I don't remember when this was, but I heard this story a little while ago, and so if you don't know, this specific kind of monk, a Cisterian monk, takes a vow of silence in a monastery, meaning they've got this, you know, plot of land and this building where they just live and eat and drink and sleep and garden and do activities, and they do it in complete silence except when they're singing praise to God or praying for the rest of their life. And in this setting, one of them, after spending time being a monk, was interviewed by a reporter on television, and he was asked if, after spending so many years in silence and giving his life over to this commitment, if he were to realize at the end of his life that, in fact, atheism was true and that there was no God, would you have any regrets in your life, the way you spent your time and your energy and your commitment to be a monk and take this vow of silence and humble yourself with all of the rituals of monkhood. And this monk responded in the following way. He said, holiness, silence, and self-sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without the promise of reward. I would have thought my life would be used very well, even if I find out at the end it was all a sham. 
So I ask you the question, is that how you would have responded? Is that how you'd respond now? If you come to the end of your life and you realize, man, the whole thing was a fake. It was all just made up stories. It's not true. It's not real. There is no resurrection. We die and we just, that's it, guys. Would we respond like this month? Monk, would you look back at your life and be like, you know, it was worth it. It was a beautiful life. And the reason I say this is because I don't think that's the way the Apostle Paul would have answered the question. I think he is the exact opposite regarding the way this monk responded. Being a Christian is not comfortable or easy many times. It is humiliating to follow Jesus. It is a taking up the cross every day. So look with me at Philippians. If this is the center of not only the book, but it is a paradigm, a concept of how you just make sense of the world and life as a Christian, then let's see a few examples of how this is worked out in Paul's life. First, before you even read in Philippians, know that the church he's writing to was started when Paul was thrown in jail. Then, when we start reading the letter, we find out that he's back in jail again. Look down at chapter 1, verse 7. In verse 7, he mentions his imprisonment and his chains. He said, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Or drop down to verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of a guy that not only got imprisoned when he first met these people in Philippi, but then is thrown into prison again, and is writing from prison, and he doesn't make one reference or mention of, would you please pray for my sufferings because I'm really struggling. I wanted to follow Jesus, and look what Jesus did to me. He is completely out of this world in his thinking. I'm actually rejoicing. I'm glad that I'm in prison because now all of these other people are coming to faith in Jesus. Now all these other people are becoming more bold in the gospel. Or we could put it this way, because of my humiliation, because of my identity of identifying with the death of Jesus, God is exalting and resurrecting new life all around me. That's how he's processing this trial and circumstance. Look explicitly in chapter 1 at verse 18 and 19. Yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is the exact opposite of what that monk said. Well, self-sacrifice is a beautiful life in and of itself. No! I'm waiting on and anticipating and hoping, banking on deliverance. I'm not just humbling myself before God because that's a beautiful way to live. 
I'm doing this because I know resurrection. I'm following the path of Jesus. I'm taking up my cross, and I know that on the other side of that death is a resurrection. That's how we make sense of the world and life and even death itself. Look at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. He's not afraid of being humbled. Why? Because with full courage, now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Nobody talks like that. Nobody talks like dying is gain unless they believe in the journey of Jesus that death can be a kind of resurrection and ascension. That descending down to the pit is one primary way that God, in little ways in the day-to-day life and in big ways, even your actual physical death can be gain. There's no way to make sense of all of the way Paul processes these struggles and hardships without seeing at the center of his universe is the descent and the ascent of Jesus Christ. It's not just that bad things happened to him. It's that Paul willingly chose to go down a path. There's a difference between those two. Both of them can be a kind of death that can be used by God to resurrect you to new life. Either something happened to you and it's causing your life to feel like a death. And then there's times where that suffering and trial and hardship is a direct result of your choice and willingness to go down a certain kind of path of life. Look at chapter 2 with me. In Paul's explanation of this, he makes it clear that this is not like, well, God's just out to get me. He's willingly pouring himself out. Chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I can be glad and I can rejoice in giving myself and pouring myself out. That's how Paul makes sense of trials and sufferings and difficulties in this world. He loses his health, and he doesn't say, what's the deal? I thought when I came to Jesus, it'd be a 10 out of 10 happiness. No more struggles, no more pain. When Paul gets thrown in jail, he doesn't think, well, what happened to things getting better when I follow Jesus? The ultimate example of Paul's radical transformation of the descent and ascent paradigm, this V-shaped way of life, not just even journey that Jesus took, but a way of life is in chapter 3. The last example I want to give you of Paul's own descent and ascent is in chapter 3, verse 4, as he looks back at his whole life and he thinks about it in these terms. He says, I myself, in verse 4 of chapter 3, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. And if anyone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, well, guess what? I've got more. My resume is better. Let me tell you it. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I didn't make that up. He's saying, I want to share in sufferings. I would like to have the full extent of following the path of becoming like Jesus in his death, that by all means, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. That sums it up, doesn't it? He looks at Jesus, the descent of Jesus, and the way that God treated Jesus. Oh, wow. Interesting. If that's what God thinks is the, the uttermost picture of godliness, if that's the thing that he's going to go, yes, I like that. I want to exalt that. I want to promote that. Then Paul's thinking, that's the path I'm on. I want to share in suffering. I want to participate in the death of Jesus because I want what? A life of peace and self-sacrifice that's just beautiful in and of itself. No, because I want resurrection. It's all over the place when you read Paul, not just in Philippians, but in all of his letters. And so I think it's safe to conclude that Jesus' life has a V-shaped journey of descent from heaven, down to earth, down to the very pit of the earth, as he is humiliated on a cross, buried into the ground, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and exalted above all. Does that seem clear? Does it also seem clear that Paul looks at that journey and says, you know, that's one way to look at my day-to-day life. That's a way to make sense of ministry in the local church. That's a way to make sense of all the pain and suffering that happens as a direct result of following Jesus. And so, friend, I think we've got to conclude. We've got to think about us now. If that's Jesus's descent in us, and that's Paul's descent in us, what about us? In chapter 1, verse 29, this is the beginning of the section in the structure of the book right before Paul starts talking about Jesus' own descent and ascent. And there's, there's an incredible phrase here that I think we need to make sure we understand. Paul, talking to the Philippian church, in chapter 1, verse 29, says this. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, the word grant is the word gift. Like, just basically, it just means I'm giving you a gift. Both of the things that are being described as gifts might be a bit jarring for most of us. First, he says, it has been granted to you. It's a gift that you have faith. Some of you think faith is all you. Faith is about what I do. This text It's kind of clear. Faith is something you do. Faith is also something God does in you. Faith is a gift. But that's not the point of today's sermon. The point of today's sermon is the other half of the sentence. There's another gift that comes with faith. Suffering. It is granted to you as a nice, beautiful bow with a box presented to you. Open this gift. You get to suffer with Jesus. Now, when you present it that way, it does sound a bit like masochistic. Like, what? 
Who thinks of that as a, as a gift? Only if you have been transformed by suffering leading to exaltation, death leading to life, descent leading to ascent. So friend, can you look at suffering and have it all flipped upside down now? The worst possible pains in this world as actually being evil things that was meant for horrific purposes, God turning for good. Can you look at your life and think, I follow Jesus and it got a lot worse. And instead of thinking, where were you, God? It's like, I was right there. I was giving you one of the gifts of following me. And so this is why in chapter 2, I didn't start reading here, but the entire purpose of this middle section hymn is for you and for me. Look at verse 5. The setup to the hymn about Jesus' descent and ascent is not primarily theology, although it is dense theology. The primary purpose of this descent and ascent of Jesus in at least the book of Philippians is explained in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Have this new mindset. Look at what happened to Jesus and say, if you want to follow him, you now have a new perspective on all of life. And that word mind corresponds to what he just said earlier in verse 2, and I think it further explains what he says in verses 3 and 4, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves, each of you not looking to his own interests, but the interests of others. In other words, be like Jesus. Have the mindset of the Son of God, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's what he means by this mindset. The church of Jesus Christ should have unity. You know what kind of unity? Not socioeconomic unity. Not unity of where we came from or how much knowledge we have. The unity of the church is expressly explained here as a unity of mindset. A like-minded thinking, an attitude, a disposition, not just intellectually, but our whole heart being shaped by verses 6 to 11. That that unity would be about a self-sacrificial giving of ourselves like Jesus gave himself. So when we read in verse 8 that Jesus humbled himself, that's deliberately explaining the verse 3, humble yourself. Consider other people more important than you consider yourself. A kind of selflessness. Therefore, I would argue that the primary purpose of verses 6 to 11, the descent and ascent of Jesus, is not primarily to explain the dense theology of the gospel, although it does, but is primarily to illustrate the kind of life, the pattern of living that Christians are to live. So, does that explain your life in any way, any form, any fashion? Do you use this as a paradigm to make sense that my entire life is a continual up and down of descent and ascent? So some of you today, right now, you might be in the middle of a descent. It could be a short descent. It could be a long descent. Family situations, work problems, issues going on. It just feels like I'm dying here. I feel like 
My soul is dying. I feel like I am headed down into further humiliation. The way that person at work or my spouse talks to me, it, it is humiliating. Do you ever feel the death and the pain of life? Some of you, that's where you're at. And then there's these moments within the already now reality of the kingdom where God in his kindness turns that death even now, before even future resurrection. And he uses that death to bring about new life. And there's glorious testimonies of God's grace of you humbled yourself. You didn't try and stick up for your name and your reputation. You considered all those things like rubbish, the wrong way to exalt oneself, as Paul says in Philippians 3. It's, it's nothing. It means nothing to me. The more we try and puff ourselves up or defend our name, the more that God will say, I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves and when we get low, God lifts us up. So very practically, prayer is a practice of humility. To get yourself low, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and cast your cares upon him. And through the practice of praying, God will lift us up, resurrect, bring new life, bring perseverance, service, feet washing kind of service, the kind of service that you get no accolades for, nobody pats you on the back, the changing the diapers in the nursery of the church, the babysitting, the giving someone a meal this week because they had a terrible injury, the kind of selflessness where it's like, look, I'm going to give and serve of myself and no one's going to hear about it and know it. Because it's not about getting the recognition and reward now. To having a conversation with a spouse, a family member, and instead of trying to win and be right, you say to yourself like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, why not be wronged for the sake of trying to bring about peace? Instead of furthering the argument, why don't I shut my mouth and listen and see if maybe I wasn't listening in the first place? When we talk this Saturday about biblical anthropology and race and cultural issues of race, we will fail miserably no matter what you think about this conversation. We will fail miserably if we do not have the mindset of Jesus Christ. There will be no racial reconciliation in the church, outside of the church, in culture, in your heart, if we do not consider others more important than ourselves, regardless of their skin color or their family background. This is essential. It's the center of Christian living. And my guess is that to the degree that you and I understand this, apply it, and make it like the rhythm of your life, the more that you will not experience happy, clappy happiness, 10 out of 10, I'm following Jesus, but you will have a deep sense of joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Sorrowful, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I am sorrowful regularly. He's in jail a lot, of course. Shipwrecked, beaten, bruised. This life of self-sacrifice is not pleasant and beautiful in and of itself. It's horrendous, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Why? How? It's not because that pursuing Jesus' descent to the death 
and thinking, well, at the end, it's, it's all nothing. It's precisely what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15. If this life is all there is, then I think of my life and I look back on all the sacrifices I made. I am the most pitiful human being that has ever walked this earth. That's how you'd respond to the reporter. So, Paul, you get to the end of your life and it was all a sham. What would you think? I'm a pitiful human being. But because of the resurrection, because of the amount of suffering that he endured, he can have an unspeakable, otherworldly kind of joy. And so, I think we should pray that God would give us this as a church collectively. This is not an individual sermon about how to make your life get turned around. This is about the church having the same mindset together. The unity of our discipleship as a church needs to be squared in on verse 5. Have this mindset, the mindset of Jesus. And my hope and prayer is that everything that we do as a church would fall under the banner of the gospel is supreme, the gospel is the descent and ascent of Jesus, and on the basis of that, we make sense of everything. Therefore, we counsel and talk and help each other in this V-shaped pattern of the Christian life. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now in Jesus' name. The one who humbled himself and took on the form of a human even to the point of death, humiliating himself on a cross. But because of his glorious new name, Jesus the Christ, now Lord, we pray for your spirit to bring unity to the members of Embassy Church. I pray that increasingly the cross will become the paradigm for how we understand the entire world, and the way we understand our individual lives, and the way we make sense of what happens the rest of this afternoon. Father, I want to pray that these concepts, by the power of your Spirit, through the reinforcement of discipleship in the local church, that we would become a community where these concepts are not just something that we learned, but rather embody. There's something that we start to make fluent, like learning a new language. We're not just learning the basic grammar. We, we talk and we speak to one another in the fluency of the gospel narrative of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would make us that kind of people, that kind of church. And I know that this is a miraculous work of your spirit because this runs against the grain of everything our world says and everything that our natural sinful hearts want. So we want to praise you for any evidences of grace, of willing humiliation, of any hope that's found in the midst of suffering because of resurrection, life. We want to praise you for the ways that even in our day-to-day -day lives there are moments of death and that you surprise us with giving us gifts of grace and exaltation even now. You're a good God. And even though we struggle to believe in your love in the midst of all this suffering, I pray that we would see the, the way that that love is poured out in Jesus Christ. And we would know you better. Help us to know you as you have been revealed here in God's word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brian, do we have the Apostles' Creed up on the screen? Yes or no?
I know I asked for it last week, but that would be a no. You do see it? 